Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. Our episode today focuses on the Royal Canadian Air Force's first ever participation in Exercise Cobra Warrior, a Royal Air Force-led large force employment exercise. Cobra Warrior is hosted by the UK's Air and Space Warfare Centre, which is located at RAF Waddington. The exercise is held twice a year, and it takes place across the UK and over multiple domains, including air, sea, land, space, and cyber. We published a detailed overview of Exercise Cobra Warrior in episode 48 of Go Bold, so we encourage you to listen to that episode as a compendium to this episode, where we are focused on Exercise Cobra Warrior 23-2. This iteration of Cobra Warrior involved more than 50 aircraft from six allied countries, including Canada, the United States, Italy, Norway, Australia, and the United Kingdom, along with the NATO E-3A Airborne Warning and Control System aircraft, which managed large areas of battle space and provided surveillance and communications. These aircraft worked together to support a fictional country in conflict to regain sovereign territory. According to a senior officer at the Air and Space Warfare Center, the intent of Exercise Cobra Warrior was to bring allied forces together in order to enhance the ability to work collaboratively on demanding missions and in dynamic threat environments. Cobra Warrior 23-2 was the first time the exercise conducted operations at night, so that added an entirely new aspect to the operations. For its first ever participation at Exercise Cobra Warrior, the Royal Canadian Air Force dispatched an air task force which included CF-18 Hornet fighter jets and the CC-150 Polaris air refueling tanker. Royal Canadian Air Force C-17 airlift aircraft also supported the deployment into Europe. Numerous types of other aircraft participated during the exercise, including the RAF's F-35B Lightning, which took part from the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth. Also participating were RAF Typhoon fighter jets and F-35s from the United States and Norway. Also participating were F-16s, Voyager MRTT air refueling tankers, HH-60 Payfock helicopters, and many more aircraft types. Our guest to speak about the Royal Canadian Air Force's participation is Lieutenant Colonel Tom Lawrence, the commanding officer of 433 Tactical Fighter Squadron and the Air Task Force Commander for Canada's participation in Cobra Warrior 23-2. We have a great discussion where we speak about leadership, fighter pilot training, the CF-18 Hornet, and combat operations. And then we deep dive into the happenings of Exercise Cobra Warrior 23-2. It's an awesome chat about a really important international training event, so we really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Let's roll the music. everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm very privileged to have as a guest, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Lawrence, who is the commanding officer of 433 Tactical Fighter Squadron with the Royal Canadian Air Force. 
and 433 Squadron flies the CF-18 Hornet. And Colonel Lawrence is currently joining me from England, where he and members of his squadron and a larger air detachment from the Royal Canadian Air Force is participating at Exercise Cobra Warrior. And this is the second iteration of Cobra Warrior for this year. So that's 23-2. So Colonel Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jody. Uh, looking forward to our chat and uh, talking about what uh, Canada is doing here in England uh, uh, and has been doing over the last three weeks. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate you taking the time for me, Colonel. Um, as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking, what was your motivation to join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? So my motivation was originally aviation. I went to aviation college uh, and got my commercial pilot's license. Originally, I thought I would become a airline pilot. And then halfway through training, I kind of fell in love with the idea of becoming a bush pilot. Uh, so after graduation, uh, I sent my resume out to uh, the four corners of this country. Uh, but at the time, uh, I didn't get uh, any responses. So I thought about uh, alternate options uh, with, uh, with regards to what I was going to do for the, uh, uh, for the rest of my career. Uh, obviously, um, for me and, and maybe a lot of other people, the idea of flying uh, fighter jets in the military is, is pretty exciting. Uh, so I decided to pursue that uh, as kind of my, my main goal. Uh, and so I joined the military uh, with the just the singular focus of being uh, a fighter pilot. Uh, but uh, during the course of basic training uh, and throughout the course of my flight training, uh, I saw uh, the other aspect of the military, which is the professionalism, uh, the camaraderie, which I love, uh, which drew me closer towards the military lifestyle. Uh, and that as a profession than just being a fighter pilot. So I guess I got the best of both worlds. Uh, I was lucky enough to become a, a fighter pilot, uh, but also lucky enough to be an officer in the military. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I have lots of friends who are pilots. And um, to me, it's such an interesting profession because there's the command side of things. You know, you're now commanding officer. So there's that whole leadership development aspect to serving in the armed forces. And then there's the operational side where you get to, you know, fly a, a high performance jet. Like, I mean, there's so much that's cool about that. Yeah, there is. And there's a lot of opportunity. And that's one aspect uh, that I really like about the military is it does expose you to a lot of opportunities that you did not necessarily think uh, were available or think that you would enjoy or, uh, or consider. Uh, in addition to seeing, you know, different parts of the country, parts of the country that you may not normally see outside of the military, it just kind of, uh, for me, opened up kind of all of Canada uh, for me to learn more about it. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, develop uh, those skills as an officer and as a pilot as well, too. So it's just a, a perfect mixture of, uh, of a lot of things that drew me in. You know, one of the things I'd like to talk about in this podcast is leadership. Um, so if I were to ask you, Colonel, what is your leadership style? Um, how would you answer that? Uh, it's generally what we would call in the military mission command. Uh, and what that really means in plain speak is giving your subordinates and the people you work with your clear guidance, your clear intent, in addition, giving them the resources uh, that they need to do the job to meet that intent. Uh, it's not necessarily always looking over their shoulder or asking for updates continually. 
uh, but just actually leaving them alone and letting them do their job. For me, that demonstrates, uh, in my mind, a lot of trust in your subordinates, uh, that uh, you trust that they have the ability, the resources, and the knowledge to get the job done. And when you're in the position as a commanding officer, uh, you can't necessarily follow everything in minute detail that you normally would as, let's say, a flying supervisor as a major or a captain. So you have to kind of zoom out a little bit and understand your responsibility as uh, as the entire uh, team, for the entire team. Uh, and so you have uh, you know different sections and, and different people responsible for different things, uh, and you have to let them do their job. And in my experience so far, uh, that sort of philosophy is has played out pretty well. I'm lucky to work with a great unit with a lot of high-performing men and women who I have no problem uh, giving that trust to to get the job done. And, and I find that that works pretty well. Uh, you know, the boss isn't always there asking for updates or kind of, you know, pulling out the screwdriver and trying to offer suggestions that they don't really need. It's just kind of, you get out of the way, let them do the job. Uh, sometimes they'll surprise you in really great ways. Uh, but more often than not, they're going to do exactly what you need them to do uh, for the sake of the team. So that's kind of my philosophy uh, in a nutshell. It's uh, just giving people the the guidance uh, and the resources to get the job done. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, I like that style because I don't think anyone likes to be micromanaged, right? So um... that's an interesting point. Like we all have experiences where we were and we for the most part, I would say most people don't like that either. Uh, so you can take those lessons that you have uh, as you develop professionally. And when you find yourself in supervisory roles, you can think back and reflect on those experiences, um, both from supervisors and leaders who were good and those that uh, weren't so good and use that to develop your own style, uh, but also to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that you experienced uh, when you were a subordinate from, uh, from a particular supervisor. Yeah, it's all lessons learned. And, you know, there are some great role models and then there are some not so great ones. So, yeah, I think uh, I think the secret to leadership is just learning from that, being observant and then going, how would I want to be treated? Yeah, for me, it's not not too complicated, or at least I don't try and complicate it too much. I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, but, uh, you know, if you treat people like human beings and understand that most of them are probably smarter than you anyways, and, and your job is not to, to be the one who outshines them. Uh, your job is to ensure that the team accomplishes its goals. Uh, I think you start to get on the right track of how to be a good leader, uh, but also how to help the team accomplish its objectives. So it's, uh, it's no secret, you know, treat people like human beings, treat them with respect, uh, give them clear expectations, help them out, you know, mentor here and there, uh, but allow them to uh, to have the space and the latitude to get the job done and potentially make some mistakes and learn from those as well. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I think that's that's just the right way to go. Um, so becoming a fighter pilot takes many, many years. Um, tell me the process that you went through to become an operational fighter pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, did you start out at the academy uh, or any of the military academies or did you go uh, direct entry? So I was direct entry. Uh, most of my initial aviation training was in the civilian world. Uh, I started at Sioux College with their aviation program, um, and I earned my commercial pilot's license, my multi-engine instrument rating. Um, I went and got my 
float plane rating as well, too, as mentioned, I was uh, really keen on becoming a float pilot, uh, bush plane pilot at the time. Um, so I came in with a little bit of civilian experience uh, into into the, the Air Force um, and as a direct entry officer as well, too. So it was a little bit of a, a learning curve for me to get adjusted into the military lifestyle uh, with uh, those concepts such as professionalism, uh, duty, loyalty, integrity, courage, uh, applying that as an officer and continuing to learn how the military flies and the differences that they do, whether it's uh, in their, their flight training system or eventually operationally when you get to your final uh, unit on the line. Uh, so I thought that um, uh, for me anyways, it was nice to have a little bit of a uh, some prior knowledge on flying, but we've got a lot of great pilots in the Air Force and you don't necessarily need to come in with any experience. Uh, the training system, uh, the training system will take care of you. Uh, so uh, so when I did get into the training system and start flying on the Harbor 2 and Moose Jaw, um, like most people, you're really happy to be there. You're really motivated. You're in an environment with a bunch of like-minded individuals. Everybody's super motivated to start learning and start flying something a little bit more high performance uh, that uh, the energy's there. The way the military teaches you to fly, uh, like you could probably surmise on your own is bit by bit. It's always baby steps, uh, no matter what you're doing, right? Uh, if you can imagine being a raw recruit on day one at basic training and five years later being an operationally qualified F-18 pilot, there's a lot of steps to take. And the military does a pretty good job of breaking those steps up into, uh, I guess, easily uh, easily achievable goals. So Moose Jaw starts out that way where you learn just how to fly the aircraft uh, on a clear sky and do some basic maneuvers. Uh, then it teaches you how to fly on instruments. Then they introduce formation flying with other aircraft, low level navigation, and you kind of take those core skills on the Harvard and then you port them over to a jet aircraft. So I, I transitioned onto the Hawk uh, with a little bit more capability, a little bit more power, uh, a little bit uh, higher expectations as well in terms of your performance. Uh, and you find, uh, or at least I did by the time that I got onto the Hawk, the year prior, you can look back and, and directly see your own development as you got to this stage. And that continues all the way onto the Hornet. And eventually when you finish your Hornet qualification course at 410, uh, it's actually easy to look back and reflect, hey, you know, this time last year, I was only able to do this, but wow, it's incredible. Now, all that I've learned has built off of everything I've done up to this point, where suddenly you realize you're flying a single seat fighter jet uh, by yourself or leading another uh, formation. And it's, you think to yourself, how did I get here? Well, you look back over the years and you realize it was just one step at a time, uh, like anything else. And uh, it's just the perseverance and the willingness to continue to work hard to learn that are the ingredients of success. Building blocks is a key for sure. And as a guy who loves tactical aviation, you know, I want to ask you the questions like, what was it like first time in a jet, you know, first time in an F-18, uh, first time in the Hawk for that matter. Because going from a turboprop to a jet, obviously things happen a lot faster. But as you said, you know, you're going from the Harbor 2 to the Hawk, then to the CF-18. So again, like if we look in big picture, those are the big blocks. Um, That's right. So maybe 
maybe the jump isn't that much of a shock, but, um, but maybe it is. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what are some of your main recollections of going from those steps from like turboprop to jet. So my main recollection when I began flying the Harvard, I still remember my first flight and it did to me seem like it was a little mini fighter jet. Uh, you're in a small cockpit. Uh, and I remember looking over my shoulders and realizing the cockpit and this jet is pretty much only as wide as your shoulders. So you're really, you're not crammed in there, but you know, it's not like you're going to be able to stand up and move around. And so you're kind of in a bit of a new environment. It, it feels different. It feels more compact, but it also gives you a great view of the ground. And, and you have that power initially with the Harvard that uh, it seems like a lot at the time. Um, but like I said, by the end of the course, uh, you realize, you know what, it's uh, uh, you've kind of mastered it and you're ready to move on. Uh, but just that feeling of, of kind of like finally arriving in something a little bit more military and operating that equipment was was pretty exciting. And I still remember that feeling to this day. Uh, which kind of contrasts with my first flight in the Hornet, which happened in Cold Lake in uh, the balmy month of uh, January, where I was wearing all this bulky clothing, uh, the G pants, um, our life preserver, all this equipment. The cockpit's not necessarily that much bigger, but I remember my first flight thinking, this is so uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I can continue with this. It's just, I don't feel good. I can't move. Uh, it's constrictive, uh, man, this is everything I wanted. And I get into this aircraft right now and it's cold and I'm just, I, I want out. So, <laughs> um, like I said, I think I use the word perseverance, right? So I think that's all it takes sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, you learn to adapt, uh, you get used to the environment, you get used to the equipment. It starts to feel a little bit more normal. Uh, and I think the body does a great job at adapting to, uh, unusual environments and the cockpit of a CF-18 is a pretty unusual environment. So, uh, after a couple of flights, you try to, you, you kind of get used to things. And then once again, uh, you start to realize and feel the incredible aspects of, of what you're doing and how lucky you are to be in that seat, uh, in that jet, uh, and just, uh, you know, how much kind of responsibility, uh, you feel you have. And, uh, it's it's a great machine. I love flying the aircraft, um, but uh, I think that's probably something that strikes everybody at some point is just like, I can't believe I'm actually here. Uh, this is just, uh, it's amazing to fly. Um, but, uh, you know, the reality of now actually having to fly that and fight with that and do that well, that's like the other 95% of, of the job. So uh, while that feeling is awesome, it wears away pretty quickly and then you kind of buckle down uh, and get to work learning how to fight with that jet uh how to work as a team to solve problems airborne uh, and that's the real challenge of the jet and once you start to master that or you get a little bit more comfortable in that environment you're ready for more right it's that same building block approach all the way up through your upgrades whether you uh, become qualified as a wingman a two-ship flight lead a four-ship flight lead uh, or uh, a mission commander uh, in some cases, uh, it's just all a building block approach and, and you just take things slowly, uh, learn the basics, learn them really well, and then move on to the next challenge or the next uh, maneuver or the next tactic. Master that and just keep moving on. And sooner or later, you'll be there. You know, Colonel, it's such a great segue towards our primary focus of this discussion, which is the Royal Canadian Air Force participation at Exercise Cobra Warrior in England. Um, 
But prior to that, you know, as you said, you kind of, you know, you buckle down and you focus on on the actual art of being a fighter pilot and, and effectively using that weapon system. Um, you are a combat veteran. You have served in combat theaters. I, I'd love to hear just a little bit about some of that experience. My first experience was in OpMobile during 2011, uh, when Canada was participating along with NATO uh, to uh, to counter uh, Muammar Gaddafi and and his his militaries uh, uh, and how they were threatening the civilian population and, and to counter that aggression. Uh, that was uh, interesting uh, from my perspective as somebody who had just arrived on squadron uh, at 425 Squadron in Baggettville. Uh, and just got combat ready and all of a sudden world events happen and you're kind of thrown into the mix right away of, of an operation when maybe you weren't necessarily thinking one was coming or, you know, and, and that's, you know, it speaks to the nature of the military uh, of just being ready for anything at all times. So kind of experienced that uh, full force on my first tour uh, and being put into a position where okay, I've learned these skills. Now I have to apply them for real. Uh, and there's, you know, everyone else is in that same position too. And obviously we're all helping each other out and, and working as a team, uh, but you're still in the cockpit alone as well. And that, that will never change. So there's a lot of trepidation, uh, a lot of, uh, a little bit of anxiety, right? Like, Hey, how is this going to go? Am I actually ready? Uh, so for me, that was, uh, that was, uh, an introduction into, into real world events and, and operations. Uh, but like, I think you would expect the team gels pretty quickly. Uh, people get down and focus on the problems at hand, how we are going to operate safely and effectively uh, to, at the end of the day, get the job done and always make Canada proud. Uh, and that happens and it happened really quickly. And, and, you know, we sustained operations over an eight month period. And in my opinion, got the job done well and with honor. And, and it was just, a, 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 on one hand, a great experience to apply what you've learned and what you've trained for for all these years uh, into a real world operation and, and make a difference. So uh, that, was, uh, that was challenging. Uh, it was exciting. It was humbling. And, and you, know, you walk away from that just uh, uh, being grateful for the team around you. Uh, and the support that you have and, and it highlights that nature of the military. Like I started with, uh, talking about the professionalism and the camaraderie. So, uh, so that was, uh, that was my first year on squadron. Uh, and then, uh, just buckled down and continued to focus on developing my, my skills as a pilot, uh, going all the way up to the weapons instructor course where they, you know, take a couple of candidates and put them through the ringer and challenge every aspect of their flying, of their uh, briefing and debriefing technique, their instructional technique, uh, and expose them to different training environments and challenges to basically try and develop the best pilot that they can, not to necessarily be the best, but to be the best instructor and then be able to impart those skills uh, and those techniques on the next generation just to, to sustain uh, our knowledge and, and keep the fighter force uh, and keep the squadrons uh, advancing and, and, and keeping pace uh, as technology changes and tactics change. So I was uh, really lucky to have that experience. Uh, and then again, world events uh, happened and 
uh, we found ourselves in Kuwait for Op Impact. So the two operations for me were uh, were in stark contrast uh, between where I was as a junior pilot to now where I was this is a little bit more of a senior pilot. Uh, and one thing I found uh, very satisfying uh, from that experience was being in a mentorship role for some guys who, just like me, three, four years ago, found themselves in that position where they just got qualified as a combat ready wingman. And they suddenly find themselves in a far off land uh, in an unfamiliar airport, uh, wondering the same things I did all those years ago. And, and to be there to, to talk about my experiences and to mentor guys and to give them that confidence boost that they needed uh, to go and, and fly and fight uh, just as well as anybody else, uh, I hope was uh, well received. Uh, but I did find that very satisfying. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm very keen to pull on that thread about the difference between your experience, aside from your own personal development as a fighter pilot, but the difference that you saw between uh, op mobile, the operation in Libya, and op impact in the Middle East. Um, both environments were fairly permissive. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that there weren't threats, but relatively permissive. Um, but but how were the two different, you know, from an operational perspective? That's a great question because there were so many similarities. Uh, the biggest one, like you mentioned, was that they were operationally permissive environments. And it's important for us to acknowledge that and take, hey, all of our successes that we may have had there, but put them into context and understand, you know what, we had... Uh, we had a situation of air superiority there. So uh, it was kind of ideal conditions to be able to operate in. But uh, fundamentally, uh, another similarity was the application of that air power to essentially just protect civilians and protect the local population. So uh, in those two regards, they're, they're quite similar. Uh, what I would say is for the Hornet specifically, we did introduce some uh, some new weapons that were more accurate, more precise, uh, and some equipment that would allow us to carry more of them so that we could bring a little bit more firepower to each and every sortie uh, when we were flying uh, over Iraq for op impact. Um, but fundamentally, the procedures were the same. Um, we were concerned about the exact same things, right? Getting the job done well, uh, putting the bombs if we needed to, where they needed to go uh, accurately, correctly, uh, and then. Uh, and then bringing the jet home and coming home safely. So, um, like I said, that's a good question off the top of my head. There weren't too many differences, uh, other than obviously the desert environment is, is very different, but, uh, the two operations were actually quite similar uh, from my standpoint. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I had the fortune to go to Trapani, Italy, uh, where the Canadians were operating the CF-18s out of during op mobile. And what I noticed there was GBU guided bombs. And I think one of the things that you're perhaps referencing in Op Impact, I think there was the switchover or the the ability to also employ the JDAM. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we had uh, two variants of what we would call uh, a weapon that can guide on, on GPS coordinates. One of them is uh, the JDAM, the Joint Direct Attack Munition, which is a Boeing product. And the other one was uh, the Enhanced Paveway 2, which was a Raytheon product. Uh, both similar. The one additional feature that the Enhanced Paveway 2 has is your ability to guide the weapon using uh, reflected laser energy. So you could, with your targeting pod, 
designate an area, designate a target with the laser, and then the weapon is going to, uh, to guide on that. But fundamentally, both weapons are, are pretty accurate, a little bit more accurate than the older Paveway 2s that we were using in Libya, uh, although those were actually still pretty precise as well, too. Um, the one feature that either the JDAM or the Enhanced Paveway 2 has, uh, the one big feature is that you don't necessarily need to see the ground to employ the weapon, right? So if you give the weapon a, a GPS coordinate, it's going to get there. If I try and fire my laser through cloud, if there's weather in the area, the weapon's not going to see that. So you're uh, you're in a position where uh, your hands are a little bit more tied employing the older style weapons uh, based on the weather. Yeah, that just shows what technology can do because everything is about being accurate, you know, reducing collateral damage, um, protecting civilians, you know, you don't want something to go where it's not intended. So the more ways that you can get it on target accurately, the better, for sure. That's it. We spend a lot of time uh, mission planning that very question and that problem itself, uh, and fundamentally trying to trying to solve how can we achieve the effects we want using the minimum amount of firepower to achieve the objective and also minimize any collateral damage uh, as much as possible. And, and maybe a lot of people will be surprised, but that's uh, that takes a large part of the mission planning process and, and a lot of our efforts to make sure we get that right. Yeah, I don't think the average listener perhaps realizes. I think people, when they think about fighter pilots, they think about, you know, maybe a movie like Top Gun or something, but also what they perhaps have seen at air shows where, you know, pilots hop out of a jet and they're not in an immersion suit and they're, you know, they don't have all that stuff. But um, similarly, I don't think the average person realizes how much training and how much mission planning goes into a sortie before you even strap on the jet. Yeah, it can be surprising. Um, going back to what you're saying about pilots at air shows, they're usually there for, uh, you know, a good time. Uh, right. So it looks like, uh, uh, it looks like just like that, but pilots at work, uh, pilots at the squadron day to day is something completely different. Right. Uh, and it is all about uh, the work um, the knowledge that we need to acquire, uh, to practice, uh, and, and debrief too. There's, there is a lot of work involved. Um, one thing that, you know, I remind myself of often that, uh, most people may not realize when they think about, let's say a squadron of, of fighter pilots and, and how they operate is the level of professionalism. Uh, that's something I try and instill in everybody else is to, reinforce those aspects of our military ethos uh, in that environment uh, and ensure that everything we're doing is uh, is correct, is professional, and we take it seriously um, because it's a serious job. And I think that's what people would expect of us. And the, that's what I expect of, of the pilots at, uh, at 433. So um, there is a lot of work uh, that goes into uh, preparing for a mission, uh, planning for a mission, uh, planning every aspect in minute detail, whether we have to uh, rendezvous with an air-to-air -air refueler and, and take gas and then proceed uh, into the operating area uh, to how are we going to come home? Um, at what point are we going to push into a target area? What type of weapons are we going to use? What sort of attack profile are we going to use? What happens if uh, there are other adversary aircraft? Everything like this needs to be considered and, and planned out. Uh, before you can even consider briefing the mission. Uh, and then that brings you to the brief. And uh, 
Traditionally, the flight lead is responsible for briefing the overall game plan and the flow of that mission to the rest of the pilots in the formation prior to stepping to the jets and then flying. So on the front end, on our typical mission training sortie at the squadron, you'll find it takes probably uh, four to five hours of work just to prepare to be able to walk out to the jets uh, for a mission that will typically last for about an hour and a half. Uh, it's, uh, it's obviously not just an hour and a half of flying around, like a lot of things are happening. Uh, and so when that mission ends, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of tactics to, uh, to analyze a lot of events to, uh, validate, uh, whether it's, uh, weapons employment events or any other aspect of the mission, any other tactical aspect of the mission, you want to validate everything. So on the back end of the mission, it can be equally as long, three, four hours, uh, just to to accurately try and figure out what happened uh, with all the facts. And when you have those facts, analyze, uh, okay, did we actually achieve our objectives today? And if we didn't, why not? And most importantly, what are we gonna do tomorrow to fix that so we don't make the same mistakes again? Uh, and that is fundamentally the training process, right? Uh, you have a problem, you plan, uh, you go and execute, and then you debrief, and then you learn, and then you get the next problem. Uh, and so uh, it's very cyclical. And over time, that, that is how, you know, we traditionally develop pilots here is, is by focusing on the debrief, focusing on the lessons learned, identifying those instructional fixes so that you as a pilot or us as a squadron can learn day to day uh, and be better. So there's typically a lot of work that goes into a mission, but uh, the guys love it. I love it. It's uh, you, you get to immerse yourself in this, uh, uh, training environment, this training scenario uh, for a day and, and do what you, you want to do and what you love doing to the best of your abilities. And you know, at the end, uh, you're going to learn something from it and you're going to be better the next day. Yeah. To do this training, the Royal Canadian Air Force currently uses the air combat maneuvering instrumentation system, right? ACMI, where you have like P5 pods on, on the aircraft. That is one of the tools that you currently use to debrief a mission. Is that the principal tool? Um, you mentioned the mission planning, the, the mission for an hour and a half or whatever it is that you're flying in the air, and then the debrief. But how do you get that truth data to do that debrief? That's a great question. We also record the screens in the jet. So you can see what the pilot sees and what the pilot's doing uh, within the cockpit as well. Uh, and so we take that information uh, we add uh, the air combat maneuvering instrumentation information as well, too, to try and recreate the, uh, the whole fight or recreate what happened. Um, that allows us to answer the all-important question of what just happened. So sometimes your flight may be only an hour and a half long, uh, but often by the end, you'll land and uh, you'll ask yourself, I don't know exactly what happened there, uh, but something did and let's go look at the tapes and try and figure out exactly what happened uh, so we can uh, so we can assess you know did we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish so that's the fundamental uh, goal of, of of these systems so uh, the air combat maneuvering instrumentation system or acmi allows you to replay the fight so most fighter aircraft will carry uh, this instrumentation on a pod either under a wing or on the wingtip and when you have every aircraft carrying that, then you can imagine it's almost like a, a video game screen with 
uh, a top-down view of all the little fighters in the airspace moving around and you can play, you can pause, you can rotate the view. Uh, you can hover over somebody and see what altitude they're at. Uh, and you can now start recreating that fight to answer that all important question, what happened? Uh, and that takes a fair bit of time to do. Uh, usually a mission will allocate about an hour of time with, uh, with all the pilots together in the same room and they'll, they'll play the fight. Uh, everybody will call out their shots to make sure we understand who's, who's targeting who, uh, or who's targeting what, uh, if they're employing uh, air to surface weapons. Uh, and by the end of that, we'll run through the entire mission. And by the end of that, we'll have a pretty good handle on exactly what happened. Uh, once again, to make that determination, hey, did we accomplish the objectives or not? The game plan that I came up with as a flight lead, was it effective? Did we execute it? Uh, you're trying to answer these, these all important questions. So quite often, uh, you know, there's always something to learn. Uh, fighter pilots are always making mistakes, uh, <laughs> which uh, may not always uh, match up with uh, the public's understanding or public's impression, uh, but we're always making mistakes. But I think the one thing that differentiates us is that we're always willing to learn from our mistakes. Uh, and that's uh, an environment where it's critical to have that attitude. Um, and so we'll then take that information of what happened and then draw out the all important debrief focus points, any learning points, and like I said, root causes to those uh, focus points and then instructional fixes so that we're all a little bit better for uh, tomorrow's mission. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned you know, recording the cockpit. Um, and I'm using air quotes here when I say cockpit, because I've seen new training systems that are provided by various companies out there where they actually in their, in their training are videotaping the cockpit. So you're seeing what a pilot is pressing or what their perhaps where their head is turned or what have you. Um, I'm assuming that that's not exactly what you mean when you're saying that you're recording in the cockpit. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Uh, what we, when I say what we record in the cockpit, uh, we record the tactical menu screens that the software in the jet presents to you, the pilot, on various screens. Uh, and you can imagine these, uh, these LCD screens are uh, about three and a half inches square. Uh, with a series of buttons all the way around. So the menu system is presented to you. You can uh, push the buttons to do different things, uh, program weapons, uh, modify aspects of your radar, um, things like that. So that's the data that you want to record and have. So you don't necessarily see the pilot's uh, finger uh, pushing the button, but you see the menu responding, right? And you see, okay, uh, in this example here, I can, on your radar screen, see exactly who you're targeting. Uh, and then I can take that information and match it up with the ACMI instrumentation and the overall picture of the bigger fight and put those two together to try and understand what's actually going on inside of uh, your head right now, or your cockpit. What's your overall understanding of the tactical situation and are the actions that you're doing correct? And so it provides a good source of information to begin to answer those questions, but also to verify and prove certain, uh, for example, weapon programming information or any other aspect of the mission that you see while you're flying around uh, executing your mission. So the two really do go hand in hand. Um, you can't really have one without the other. And I think you can appreciate a little bit of the problem when you reflect on the fact that it's a single seat fighter. There's just one person in there. Uh, so I don't really ever know what goes on in someone else's aircraft. I got to watch the tapes. I got to talk to them to 
put that picture together. And, and as I mentioned, sometimes you land after a mission and, and you don't know what, what happened. And, and so you just got to give, uh, uh, give yourself a chance to watch the tapes and, and piece it all together. Yeah. That's why debrief is so incredibly important. Hey friends, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. Do you know who best supports fighter pilots and other warfighters to be the best that they can be? Well, that is Cubic Defense. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters the cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic leads the way with highly precise tracking systems for aircraft and test ranges. This technology has been adopted by militaries around the world and includes capabilities like Air Combat Maneuvering Instrumentation, or ACMI, which this year celebrates 50 years in support to Allied Air Forces. So important is this technology that it is embedded as an internal subsystem in the F-35. Cubic has also developed SPEAR, a revolutionary learning platform for multi-domain operations and training. SPEAR is a Department of Defense-approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. SPEAR basically melds objective and subjective data with a time-synchronized, real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the SPEAR software allows warfighters at the unit level or enterprise training and operations level to visualize operations throughout the mission cycle, which enables them to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. Um, so this is a great kind of precursor discussion to set up the main goal of our, our chat here, which is Exercise Cobra Warrior. Um, how did the Royal Canadian Air Force decide to participate in Cobra Warrior? Because there are a number of large force employment exercises that, mm -hmm. um, that allied forces can participate around the world. And the reason why I ask this is because the Royal Canadian Air Force, this is the first time that the RCAF is participating in Exercise Cobra Warrior. Yeah, you're correct, Jody. It is our first time uh, uh, doing Exercise Cobra Warrior. Uh, I'll say generally, uh, not a lot of people realize, especially uh, younger pilots, the Air Force gets invitations to multiple exercises all over the world every year. Uh, so we're in the fortunate position where we get to, to pick and choose what we can do and what we want to do. Uh, otherwise, typically, if you're the commanding officer of a squadron, uh, you can start to pick and choose some locations that you want to deploy to to go on exercises. Uh, that's normal. Uh, and you'll have all the commanding officers of the of the different fighter squadrons kind of come up with a plan every year to see who's going where for what training objectives. Uh, so there's some latitude we have uh, at that level, uh, but at the more strategic level, sometimes uh, there's uh, there's a reason that they may want to deploy a squadron or, or really any military force anywhere around the world for different objectives. So for Cobra Warrior itself, we did get an invite uh, and. Uh, we were asked by 
our leadership if this was something we would want to participate in uh, because we hadn't planned on doing it. Uh, we had about six or seven months uh, notice before the exercise was going to start to, to answer that question, uh, to learn a little bit more about Cobra Warrior and understand what the tactical training benefits would yield for us. Um, so ultimately, after a few planning conferences and getting a better feel of who was going to be here, what were the exercise objectives and what we think we could get out of it, we, we made the decision that, yeah, it would be it would be a really worthwhile uh, experience uh, for everybody. I think from the leadership's aspect, one thing that uh, was communicated to us that was desirable to them about Cobra Warrior was having fighters in Europe and continuing to have a military presence in Europe to reassure our allies that Canada is still committed to NATO. Uh, we still want to have an ongoing and continuing presence in Europe uh, for all the the concurrent reassurance activities that are happening right now. Uh, so I, I can definitely understand that. Uh, I'm just grateful that we can, and we found and settled on an exercise that uh, balances everything actually quite nicely. Uh, so it was uh, it was uh, fantastic to have the opportunity to come to Cobra Warrior uh, to achieve some of those strategic objectives uh, and that key messaging that you send when you put six to seven fighters anywhere around the world Obviously, people are going to take note of that, but also have those great training opportunities for the younger pilots, uh, for the technicians, for the logisticians and everybody else who supports the deployment. So it really worked out nicely for us. Yeah. And you guys are the lucky squadron that got to participate because there's four operational fighter squadrons in the Royal Canadian Air Force. So uh, mm -hmm. it was uh, 433 Squadron's uh, fortune to be the one. Yeah, we're uh, very privileged to be here. Uh, and just understanding that, though, uh, drives us to extract as many tactical lessons that we can out of this exercise, because there are a lot. Uh, it presents uh, uh, an interesting modern tactical scenario that everybody can learn from, uh, but also allows us an opportunity to apply our tactics uh, to develop game plans that I think would benefit the other fighter squadrons as well, too. And that will all be part of our our post-exercise report uh, on those lessons observed to ensure that everybody across the fighter community can learn from from what we did here. That's a really good point, Colonel, because you know you guys have the fortune of being there, participating in the exercise, but then you write this report and clearly it will go up to higher headquarters, but I'm assuming at some point in time it gets disseminated to the other operational squadrons, You know the, the lessons learned. Yeah, they're usually the ones who find out those tactical lessons right away, even before uh, any reports are published. And, and that's what you would expect, right? If there's an ongoing conflict or an operation somewhere, uh, that information that's being uh, learned uh, or uh, those things that are being observed are being communicated back to, uh, back to other squadrons and back to other uh, support agencies. Uh, to either modify what they're doing or better prepare to be able to come and relieve you when 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 your tour is done so that doesn't need to wait and we've had uh we've had one example or actually a couple of examples where that information does get uh, pushed up pretty quickly so so everybody can learn well that's good I'm, I'm glad to hear that that happens because um yeah if there are some of those critical lessons they should get pushed down and and out um so when did planning 
specifically begin for Cobra Warrior 23-2 from an RCAF perspective? And uh, how were the units picked? Because it was more than just your squadron. Uh, that's true. So we, if I may take a moment, we were picked uh, as uh, the squadron to go because of our uh, deployment readiness status. Uh, we had spent a lot of time the year prior ensuring that everybody had the quals and the uh, the courses and everything done that they needed to have complete prior to deploying so that uh, at a moment's notice, four through three squadron could be deployed. Uh, so we started, uh, and when I say we, I mean the Air Force started planning our participation in Cobra Warrior around January in conjunction with the initial planning conference that was taking place uh, with the exercise directors and the other participants. So it was about uh, uh, seven months or so of, of lead time to be here. And as you mentioned, it wasn't just 433 Squadron or the Hornets. Uh, we also planned on sending a small detachment of air battle managers. Uh, so the people that we talk to on the ground, who we call our tactical uh, command and control, uh, folks who direct us and, and give us critical information for us to uh, achieve our objectives, uh, but also the CC-150T Polaris, so our air-to-air -air refueler, uh, was also going to participate. So it was an example where we would not just send fighters, but actually package up a few capabilities and then offer that to uh, to the exercise staff in a similar fashion on how we would do that if it was an operation. We would package together some capabilities as, as a force and, hey, this is Team Canada, this is what Canada can provide you. Uh, let's see how we can all fit in and contribute to mission success. So yeah, it was about uh, seven months uh, prior to, to plan uh, before we arrived here and executed. Right. And so, so the total number of personnel that you would have on this exercise uh, would be roughly how many? So we deployed almost the entirety of the squadron. Uh, but across our three operating locations here in England, uh, we have about 150 to 160 people in total. Yeah, that's not a small contingent. Like, I mean, that's a good good number of people. And I guess in regards to that, you know, to, to support the force, you had the Polaris, which refueled you across the Atlantic and supporting you during the exercise. But in addition to that, I am assuming you had airlift that also helped support with equipment. That's true. And nothing happens without airlift. And uh, my air mobility friends would uh, would like to hear me say that. But uh, yeah, uh, we need some way to move our parts, our equipment, and that entire logistics chain from Canada to wherever it is we need to operate. It's actually quite easy just to fly the jet from point A to point B, uh, in this case, uh, to England. That's no problem. The problem is continuing operations after that. So if we don't have a well-established supply chain or at least the capability to initially move that equipment quickly and reliably, it's probably not going to happen. So uh, with the benefit of uh, C-17s uh, who uh, delivered all that mission critical uh, equipment to us, uh, we can sustain operations here. And, and with those continued service flights, uh, like we've seen on operations, that, that is actually what sustains operations. Uh, it's not just uh, an F-18 flying or, uh, you know, technicians uh, fixing jets that, that sustain operations. It's that entire logistics uh, support, that, that tail, which is actually quite large, uh, that's necessary to, to enable something like this to happen. You know, it strikes me that in Canada, being such a large country, that you can actually exercise a lot of that within the country because there are 
in essence, strategic ranges within Canada itself. The thing that you wouldn't get, though, is that um, is that coalition type atmosphere where you're operating with others if you just stay domestic. Yeah, that's correct. I would say I would add one more thing to that, too. And it was one one point I mentioned to everybody when we first got here is you also don't get that that friction and that difficulty that naturally comes with operating from an unfamiliar location. That itself is is key to experience uh, and to overcome because once you start developing the problem solving mindset, even on an exercise like this, you're going to encounter the same problems on a real world operation too. So we need to kind of instill that right mindset, but also experience those difficulties and those frictions that will happen. And we may not always get that when we operate back home in Canada. Uh, but like you mentioned, yeah, when we come here or we go to other exercises and we have the opportunity to fly uh, and train with other nations, that is invaluable. Uh, that's something that is not just worthwhile for us. We're not the ones showing up and benefiting from that. We arrive and everyone does as well to you because they're looking at us the exact same way. It's like, oh, the Canadians are here. I'm sure we have something to learn and and we can now uh, have more complex uh, training scenarios. We can uh, start challenging ourselves that much more with more fighters. So um, more fighters is always great, uh, but fighters from different nations or different types of fighters is an invaluable training opportunity that allows us to understand how do we fit in? How do we be interoperable? Uh, how do we fight and how do we win together? Yeah. And uh, Colonel, you mentioned that, you know, you deployed pretty much the bulk of, of your squadron to this exercise. Um, I'd like to ask in numbers in terms of aircraft, because I think, you know, when somebody might hear most of the squadron deployed, that doesn't necessarily mean all of the jets deployed. Yeah, that's correct. So we deployed seven aircraft uh, and for the, the amount of sorties we flew, or plan to fly, we found that that was the right amount of aircraft uh, so that we could sustain operations and not necessarily reach a point where, oh, the jets are all broken right now. We can't fly tomorrow. We need to take a pause. So in that same context of like, what does it actually take to sustain operations uh, is bringing the right resources in the right quantity to make that happen. Uh, so our squadron has approximately 14 jets in total uh, on paper. Uh, so at any given day uh, with the CFA team, we'll achieve about a 50% serviceability rate. Uh, so we'll have half of our aircraft able to fly. Uh, and then as we fly the jets, we fight them hard, the jets will break. Uh, there's always a continual um, uh, replacement of jets that were broken that are now fixed and jets that you know were good today, but unfortunately we brought them back and they're unserviceable. But we got a great team of technicians here who know the jet well. Uh, who work really hard and always work extra hard when we're uh, on the road on exercises uh, to make sure that our operations section has the aircraft that they need to go and fly and get the job done. Yeah. Um, in one of the previous episodes of this podcast, I chat with Brigadier General Balf, and we spoke about the Hornet Extension Project in quite some detail. So I'm curious to know if you guys have these modernized Hornets or will they be coming to the to the squadron soon so they'll be coming to the squadron really soon uh there's currently a lot of testing that's going on uh to make sure that they're they're safe and that they're ready to fly and we're almost there uh, i know in baggettville uh, we should be receiving the first batch of our 
our HEP jets, as we call them, the Hornet Extension Project, our modernized jets uh, here early 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that'll be exciting. Uh, and as personally as someone who has worked in Ottawa uh, in the project approval world uh, and someone who has uh, has helped kind of design and, and shepherd this, this project along from its infancy, it's really satisfying to see this arrive at the line uh, to be able to give the newer generation of pilots something better than we had uh, when we flew. So it's that continual evolution process uh, and that, that modernization that's, that's a process that's necessary, uh, not just in the military, but uh, in any other venture, right? So uh, I think uh, it's going to represent a lot of work for us because that will bring a lot of new capabilities for us. Uh, in some respects, it'll act as a bridge as we transition to the F-35 as well, um, but it'll be a lot of work. But I think for a good cause to have a, a more capable jet, uh, but also to help the force transition to F-35, which uh, when we look at the long-term view of the fighter force, that really is the goal. So we have to ensure a lot of our activities, uh, if not all of them, are aligned towards achieving that goal on timeline. Right, right. And so I encourage listeners to go and listen to that episode with Brigadier General Balf, and that is episode 47 of Go Bold. And in that episode, the general was explaining to me how there's going to be HEP-1 jets and HEP-2 jets, and the HEP-2 jets will be the uh, the most capable uh, CF-18, mm -hmm. modernized CF-18 or upgraded CF-18. Uh, do you know, Air Squadron, which ones you're going to be getting? Everybody will across the fleet will have HEP-1 jets, but do you know if 433 is going to get HEP-2s? Uh, that's correct. So every... Uh, every squadron will have the HEP-1 jets, uh, which that was a series of upgrades that were meant to satisfy regulatory requirements, uh, air traffic management requirements, and basic interoperability uh, requirements when we uh, fly and, and, and fight with our allies. So everybody gets that, but there will only be two squadrons, so one at each wing that will receive upgraded uh, HEP-2 jets. And the, the, the HEP-2 jets are the ones that will have uh, the combat capability upgrades, the sensor upgrades, the weapons upgrades, uh, some of the uh, operational security upgrades necessary to, to use that equipment. And they'll be the squadrons that will, will fly those jets uh, out into uh, the early 2030s and, and actually allow the other two squadrons to transition to F-35. So in Baggettville, that's going to be 425 Squadron. As I mentioned, they should be receiving their the first of their HEP-2 jets in early 2024 uh, or mid-2024 um, with uh, other features slowly trickling into that jet as it builds up into its, uh, its full capability uh, as per what the project objectives are. So on one hand, uh, you'll have 433 Squadron begin to, uh, and its personnel begin to focus more of their efforts in supporting 425. Uh, but the goal for that is to ensure 425 is as combat capable as possible with their jets and then allow the other squadron uh, and the other personnel to transition to the F-35, whether it's uh, sending technicians down to learn uh, how to fix and maintain that jet, uh, as well as to pilots uh, to learn how to fly that jet. Yeah, it's a long and a very complex uh, juggling match in a way to kind of have the right people in the right place. Because that transition to a new fleet is no small task. No, it's something that represents a big leap in capability, uh, an entirely different way of treating security, 
handling of that material, handling of that jet, uh, just managing the knowledge around that aircraft to, to use it capably. I'm sure it's going to be a similar change for the logistics and the supply chain aspect of maintaining that jet. Uh, within the construct of uh, the partnership of all the other nations who also fly that jet. So in almost every respect, it represents a really big change. Uh, one of the ways I characterize the importance of the HEP-2 jets is that it does allow us to sort of dip our toes in that water with some more advanced weapons, some more advanced sensors, uh, augmenting and in increasing our, our security around our operations as well, too to begin to address that. And so it really is a bridge towards uh, F-35 that will help us onboard this, this aircraft that comes with these massive changes easier and more successfully uh, at the end of the day. For us, going from you know the, the 40 year, 45 year Hornet uh, straight to the F-35, I think would be an incredible challenge. And I know others have, have done that, uh, but uh, this way, I think, is a more elegant solution to continue to, to have the Hornets play a role, uh, to continue to have some capability while we transition to the F-35 so that uh, Canada has uh, the air power uh, it needs, obviously, to defend our skies and, and defend our interests wherever they may be. Yeah, right on. And, you know, the Hornet in itself is no slouch, right? Like, you know, the upgraded jets, especially the HEP-2, will be a really impressive platform. But yeah, it will be a lovely bridge over to the F-35. Um, so getting back to Cobra Warrior, so you guys deployed, uh, I'm assuming the, the Polaris supported you guys and the seven jets crossing the Atlantic. Uh, and then you were operating primarily out of RAF Waddington, is that correct? That's correct, uh, which is traditionally uh, an ISR base. So they fly uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance type aircraft here. Uh, but more than capable to support fighter operations, and they've been fantastic. So we've had the bulk of the detachment here. Uh, our air battle managers were a little bit further north at RAF Bulmer, uh, where the Tactical Command and Control Center is. And then further north in Lazymouth in Scotland, that's where we had our, our Polaris tankers. So we were kind of spread uh, across the northern half of the country. And that was our little Team Canada footprint uh, in the UK as we uh, as we conducted our Cobra Warrior missions. Cool. And um, so in episode 48 of Go Bold, I spoke with uh, RAF Group Captain Andy Burton, who is the Deputy Commandant of the UK's Air and Space Warfare Centre. And he spoke about Exercise Cobra Warrior and how the vision was to develop it into like the red flag of Europe. Um, and clearly, Cobra Warrior is attracting a lot of international participants. You know, this is the first year, as we mentioned, for the Royal Canadian Air Force to participate. But there are a number of other nations that participated as well. Yeah, it's not just the fighters here. We actually had uh, Australian uh, special forces here. Uh, the UK Army as well participated uh, a lot. Uh, with uh, the TAC aviation assets. Uh, we had uh, air mobility as well play a part, uh, simulating uh, you know, troop insertions or, or trying to bring people out of an area. Uh, so there's a lot of other things going on, and it's not even a question of behind the scenes. There's just a lot of other things going on in addition to, to the fighters. And I know the fighters tend to get a lot of attention, but a lot of the problems, the tactical problems that we've been dealing with here for Cobra Warrior has been, hey, how are we going to protect uh, these slower moving, undefended assets 
so that they can do the job and achieve the effects they want. The purpose of this mission may be uh, focused on uh, what tactical aviation needs. But uh, in addition to that, we do have, uh, obviously ourselves, we have F-16 squadrons from uh, Spangdalm. Uh, we have the Typhoons playing with us as well too. Uh, the Norwegian F-35s, RAF F-35s, uh, as well as uh, US F-35s too here. So we have a, a very nice, uh, almost it's actually a very incredible mix of, of platforms here uh, to train with. Uh, to train against, uh, to ensure that, you know, we are getting that training value and we're achieving our objectives uh, as a squadron out here in Cobra Warrior. Very, very cool. So you just described what could easily expect to see if there was a real world operation, you know, this mix of disparate fighters uh, capabilities. Um, and, you know, you mentioned kind of a multi-domain nature to it as well, you know, with ground forces and, and what have you. So I would love for you, Colonel, to describe how the exercise unfolds. So, you know, if you could kind of walk me through arriving at RAF Waddington, you know, getting the different folks set up at Lossy Mouth and elsewhere at the other outstations. Um, how does this exercise unfold? I assume it's a bit of a crawl, walk, run approach, but um, or it, do you just go into high tempo? It is a little bit of a crawl, a walk, run, but a little bit shorter than you may think. So typically the participants will arrive at their operating location. And the first thing they're going to do is receive orientation briefs. So how do we fly in this airspace? What is the airspace that we're using? What are all the rules that we need to be aware of so that not just we can safely operate in this airspace, but we can get to and from it safely without uh, breaking any rules, essentially. Uh, that's typically followed by capability briefs. So just like we're not that familiar, let's say working with F-16s all the time, the same holds true for them. So it's important for everybody uh, with their platform that they bring to be able to communicate what those capabilities are to everybody else so that the whole team can start to have an understanding of who is good at what, uh, who's strong in this area, uh, how do we help that person there, what do they need, and you take stock of all the capabilities that you have here so that you can start thinking about how to use them to solve tactical problems. So that's pretty much the uh, the crawl phase because the exercise starts uh, a, day, a day or two later. Typically, we'll arrive about four days prior just to allow ourselves to accommodate to the new environment and do this orientation process. Uh, but things pretty much start right away. And when the exercise starts, uh, it's it's full on. So you'll see that over the first couple of days of the exercise, people are still trying to figure uh, things out. They're still learning about uh, the other capabilities. Uh, they're getting accustomed to the tactical environment and how to how to run a mission planning process to prepare for uh, for the flight the next day. So there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of growing pains. Uh, the tactical problem uh, isn't any easier though. Uh, it's just something that we all have to work through. And that's, I think, pretty representative of how it actually is, if this would be a real operation. As we go through a little bit of these, these growing pains until we kind of settle into a rhythm uh, but also a way of doing things that everyone is a little bit more comfortable with now because we've done it for a while. Uh, so that's kind of the natural progression of how uh, how an exercise starts and how things typically feel for the first couple of days. But by the end of the first week, everybody has a pretty good idea of, of what everyone else can do, 
how to employ their capabilities and how to plan and integrate them into the larger game plan uh, so that you can go out and uh, and execute and have a chance of, of achieving success. So is the exercise built around a particular scenario or I guess I'm just trying to understand how how missions are defined or sorties are defined and, and how this all kind of comes together. So the scenario is typically fictitious, but the developers or the directors of the scenario will have to choose um, uh, which sort of adversary are they trying to uh, emulate. So uh, in this case, uh, the adversary uh, uses Russian equipment and it's about understanding what specific systems you're going up against so that you can develop appropriate tactics and game plans to counter that. Uh, so it is still though a campaign type environment. So every mission affects the next day's mission. So if you achieve success or you achieve failure, that's going to kind of drive what um, what the force is doing on the next day. Uh, and we, uh, I say we, but we're part of it, but there is a, a full team of, of exercise staff here at Waddington who support us and our training by developing the scenario and then managing it day to day, uh, injecting changes here or uh, adding certain new objectives, let's say during a mission planning process, just to inject a little bit of realism into, uh, into the training environment for us here. But uh, for the most part, having a scenario like that lets all the participants take stock of that scenario and really immerse themselves in it to drive the most training that we can get out of it. And so you want to have that sense of realism there. So uh, that continuous sort of campaign, that scenario, uh, really helps uh, helps everybody get into the spirit of the training environment uh, and uh, apply themselves fully. Yeah, um, you know, there's many ways to do that. Um, typically, you would have a group of aircraft or forces that are acting as adversaries, so red air. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also a, a more modern construct of using live, virtual, and constructive elements as well. Um, so how does it unfold at Exercise Cobra Warrior? Like, I mean, are you flying against red air assets or are there any virtual or constructive? So we are, and I'll give you a little bit of a, an idea of the, the scope and like how many fighters are airborne. Typically, uh, we'll have on the Blue Force side, which are the good guys, you'll have typically between 25 and 30 aircraft. Uh, five of those may be air-to-air -air refuelers. Uh, a couple may be uh, a support aircraft, like uh, tactical command and control, like an AWACS. Uh, and then on the adversary side or the red air side, you'd have probably an equal amount of fighters as well, too. So we're typically doing missions where we've got 20 good guys fighting against 20 bad guys. And then the adversary also has uh, surface-to-air uh, missile systems that are trying to deny the use of this airspace uh, to us at the same time. So. Uh, that's generally the scope of what we saw here at Cobra Warrior. There wasn't any um, live, virtual, or uh, constructed uh, type entities within uh, the training environment as well, too. And I'll make that distinction. I'll call them entities because uh, we can all pretend that there's a specific uh, surface-to-air missile system at this point, uh, and then just notionally draw a circle around that and say, okay, for me to be safe, I just need to stay out of that area. Uh, so you could construct something like that, and sometimes we do that uh, to drive uh, some learning objectives. But when I say entity, it's more something like you can interact with with your weapons systems uh, in your aircraft or your sensors. That's not necessarily physically in the training environment. Uh, 
so I know we're still experimenting with that in different uh, flag type exercises. Uh, we didn't have too much of that here in Cobra Warrior, but I think that's the space where every exercise director and every Air Force who does conduct a flag type exercise, a large force employment, is looking at augmenting the training by bringing in this, uh, this technology so we can add more more entities uh, and more fundamentally more problems for uh, the fighters to solve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think that it will be the natural evolution of training for sure, you know, to incorporate these entities. Um, and one of the other aspects about all of this is if you look at the United States Air Force and, you know, you being in the Royal Canadian Air Force and part of NORAD, you interact with the U.S. Air Force all the time, um, they are exercising what's called agile combat employment a lot. And I think allied forces are trying to exercise that more and more. Um, you know, perhaps we could say we're doing agile combat employment in Canada just by going to some of the forward operating bases. Uh, mm -hmm. But those are known places that you go to. Um, agile combat employment typically entails going to some place that that you weren't anticipating, you know, go there, set up, operate for a little while, and then depart and go somewhere else and be just that agile. Is there any aspect of that at Cobra Warrior? Or do you see that that is also going to be incorporated into exercises just like LVC will be incorporated as technology moves forward and time goes on? That's a really interesting question. Uh, the agile uh, combat employment uh, concept is uh, is very indicative of the current uh, threat environment, I would say, or at least the advances that have happened in uh, military technology over the years. And for us to train to that, um, that would be, I think, an interesting infrastructure problem uh, to set up different areas where the, the participants could, let's say, land and operate out of. Not to say that that's not possible, um, but... Uh, one way maybe actually just to expand the scope of the entire exercise itself and include a larger geographic area and include more participants perhaps and then you can potentially fly people around into different operating locations um, what we have here or at least one aspect of that that i think uh, has been very effective for us at cobra warrior is that idea of having your forces geographically dislocated from each other so we're not all operating at the same base right and if you do that, it introduces the problem of how are we going to coordinate what it is we want to do um, when we're all at different locations, but what we're doing is highly classified. So we have to have a secure means of just basically communicating with each other. Uh, so it sounds perhaps not that challenging or not that complex, but in practice, it's it's interesting. I mean, we all have our issues with our IT, right? It fails all the time and it doesn't always necessarily work as advertised or the way it's supposed to. Um, and that holds true here. So with us in Waddington, uh, working with fighters in Lazy Mouth, uh, tankers in Lazy Mouth as well too, uh, F-35s, F-16s in Marham, Coningsby, all these different bases around uh, the Eastern portion of the UK uh, has been a challenge for us and has been a really good learning experience and a good aspect of this exercise, uh, not just for us, for everybody else, because what we're doing is trying to mission plan and coordinate how we're gonna execute in this environment where like we're doing now, 
we're just video teleconferencing. That's that's the most I can get. I can't actually just have you here with me and we can pull out a map or just you know, drop uh, some lines on a whiteboard and talk about game plans. It's a little bit more challenging. If I need to pass products to you, I have to do it on a network drive, right? Uh, and we need to have good connectivity. So like I was saying earlier, we don't always have that the performance that we need out of our IT systems to enable that all the time. So there were periods where we just simply can't bring up a, a certain base. Uh, so we're not able to talk to the fighters for a period of time because the system's just not necessarily working the way it should. And that aspect, I actually really enjoyed. That to me is a little bit more of that realism in terms of us doing this on operations for real with VTCs. This is going to happen. Uh, people are going to drop offline. Um, the time that you think you had to brief your game plan uh, or to coordinate a certain aspect of the mission, you don't have anymore because you can't talk to anybody or you need to now talk to them via other means. And maybe all I can do is just update a PowerPoint slide deck to show you, hey, here's my game plan. I can't talk to you about it, but I'll put it on the network drive and maybe you can look at it and, and share your comments afterwards. So it's been interesting to see the different levels of communication that we've had here uh, and how we've responded to that, because I think that's entirely applicable in this uh, ACE environment where everyone's dispersed and everyone's operating out of their own little location, but we still need to be able to talk to each other. And at the very least, we still need to be able to get airborne and, and execute our missions in a mission planning environment where we don't necessarily have the full time to do that. I'm so glad that that was something that you actually saw and experienced in this exercise, because that's part of why you go to these things, right? So it's it's mm -hmm. so cool to hear that that's kind of one of the lessons or, or takeaways. Um, you mentioned that the CF-18s were operating out of RAF Waddington. Um, how often would you guys be doing sorties? Like, would it be just one vol a day or would you be doing more than one? Yeah, we would fly two waves uh, a day, but for the Cobra Warrior exercise, it was one mission a day. And to fly that mission, that crew, you have to plan the day prior. And the mission planning cycle, as we call it, is about a 12-hour event the day prior. So that's your entire day just to plan the mission, and then you go fly it the next day. So to go for a, a two or a two-and-a-half-hour flight, during one Cobra Warrior mission, that's about two days worth of work to make that happen. Uh, so we had one wave of four aircraft that we would dedicate to the Cobra Warrior missions, and then a second wave later in the day of two aircraft. Uh, and that wave uh, wasn't tied to any Cobra Warrior specific missions, but we were allowed to then coordinate our own training with the other fighter units at a smaller level, um, but with a freer hand to decide what we wanted to do. So we could go and let's say dogfight some typhoons uh, from Lazymouth, or we could practice tactical intercepts with F-16s uh, or smaller scale missions uh, with some of the other fighter units. But that allowed us the opportunity to achieve some other training objectives that we wanted to achieve just outside of the Cobra Warrior construct. Oh, cool. It's nice that you had that flexibility. And so am I correct in assuming that the CF-18s, uh, your CF-18s, were always acting as blue force, or did you ever emulate red forces at any time during the exercise? So for the most part, we were blue force. Um, typically um, on exercises like this, you'll do just a little bit of red just to contribute to that for the simple reason that um, the participants are here to fly as blue air, to fly their tactics and learn those lessons. But somebody has to fly red air. Uh, usually the host nation takes the bulk of that uh, 
uh, of that work. Uh, so we had a lot of typhoons that were supporting all of the participants by flying as red air. But for at least one mission during the exercise, a participant nation would contribute to that pool of red air by flying their jets as well. So one day uh, out of the exercise, we did fly as red air. Uh, once again, for obviously a good cause to support the training objectives of uh, of the other nations as well. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so I have to ask, what was it like to fly? So, you know, the CF-18 is a fourth gen aircraft, even though it's being, you know, continually modernized. Um, what was it like to fly against Typhoons and F-35s? Um, you know, I could ask about F-16s as well, but, you know, the Typhoon is just such a cool performing aircraft and the F-35 is kind of the newest kid on the block. So I got to ask. Yeah, there's flying with and flying against. For the most part, when you're flying against other aircraft, they're trying to replicate to the best of their abilities an adversary weapon system, right. whether it's a, a different type of aircraft uh, or a different type of missile uh, or weapon. Uh, so for the most part, uh, whether it's uh, a Typhoon or an F-16 or a Hornet trying to replicate that, uh, the effect should roughly be the same uh, for the good guys. Uh, for me, it was more exciting to fly with the other aircraft here. Uh, flying with the F-16s from Spangdalem, uh, who have a, a suppression of enemy air defense mission set uh, that they do was was pretty unique. It's not something that the Hornet is equipped to do or train or we train to do. And in the same vein, flying with F-35s and being able to work with all of those amazing capabilities that that aircraft brings, I think that's where the real joy is and that's where the real learning is, is, is getting into a room uh, or in this case over VTC with all these uh, different formations and then talking about, okay, hey, I remember what you, you briefed uh, earlier about your capabilities. Well, here's our tactical problem right now. How are we, all of us, going to solve this? Okay, because it's not just going to be the F-35s by themselves because you guys don't have enough firepower. So how are we going to include Typhoons in here? How are we going to include Hornets? Uh, how are the F-16s going to help us by suppressing uh, surface air missile systems so that we can get into the airspace uh, and do what it is we need to do? Uh, that to me is the best part. And that touches on the true training value of exercises like this, because like I said, they're getting the same training from us as well. And F-35 pilots uh, also need to train with fourth generation pilots uh, and fourth generation aircraft so that they understand what those aircraft need uh, to be able to do the work in conjunction with them. Uh, so that's really the best part. It's just flying with these people and with these uh, capabilities because uh, it just drives learning right through the roof and it's, uh, it's a fantastic experience. It's an interesting problem, right? Because you would assume that most of the F-35 operators came from fourth gen and it's not like they've forgotten what it's like to be fourth gen, but now that you're operating a fifth gen aircraft, you have to also orient your mind to operating with whoever still got fourth or 4.5 gen. So yeah, that training problem exists both ways. It does. And we're still in that period where not uh, everybody has transitioned from uh, a fourth generation type aircraft to uh, the fifth or, or something else, something more advanced, right? Uh, in my opinion, the Hornet is just as capable as the Typhoon or the F-16, uh, really uh, anything else in its own class. A lot of it comes down to uh, the pilot and the team and how well they can work together. So this period where we're still flying these aircraft demands that we work together 
uh, we understand how to operate together and how to complement each other uh, so that the team's effective, right? Uh, F-35s are uh, fantastic aircraft. Uh, I'd love to fly one one day, uh, but they have their weaknesses too uh, that aren't always apparent to uh, a fourth gen pilot, right? Who perhaps can load up more weapons on his or her aircraft than the F-35 can. And so you learn pretty, pretty early on how to complement each other and okay if we need a little bit more firepower here then it would make sense to have some some fourth gen fighters up but maybe we'll uh, attach a couple of f-35s to them so that they can work together and benefit from the increased uh, sensor capability let's say that the f-35 brings for example a perfect example colonel and i think that's exactly how a lot of coalition operations will be you know until everybody's on the same page but I personally believe it's not good to have everyone having the same piece of kit, right? Like, I mean, I think having a disparate mix provides for kind of a robust capability as opposed to having every everything in one basket. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and we don't want to think of that just applying to the type of aircraft as well, right? Uh, you want to think about different weapon systems, uh, different uh, electronic warfare pods, uh, other capabilities. Uh, you talked about multi-domain as well, too. Uh, certain nations may have a specialty, let's say, with capabilities that are based in space or uh, cyber uh, capabilities as well, too. Uh, it's really not just about the platform, but the effects that you can achieve with the capabilities that you bring. And when you bring a diverse set of capabilities, then you enjoy the luxury of being able to pick and choose what the best ones are for the tactical problem set that you have at the time, which at the end of the day should just go and enhance your probability of success. Right, right. Um, so, you know, you mentioned different pods that aircraft can have. Um, you know, the United States has a lot of capabilities, including electronic warfare aircraft. Um, how is EW exercised in something like Cobra Warrior or any other exercise for that matter, but specific to Cobra Warrior, how how do you operate and train for that EW problem? So first, we have specific safety rules with regards to electronic warfare, especially when you consider the ability to jam frequencies and communications. Uh, so just having a, uh, an understanding of what those are and how to operate safely uh, within that spectrum is the first start. Otherwise, what pilots will typically see and experience in an exercise like this is a lot of communications jamming, uh, a lot of jamming of their air intercept radars. Uh, and it does a really good job of taking your game plan, which you think you're going to be able to execute uh, really easily and well, uh, and 10 times out of 10 without making a mistake uh, and kind of putting you on the back foot, right? I can't necessarily talk to that person. I didn't exactly hear what that person said. Like, I'm not sure, are they hostile or not? Like, or who am I trying to target into here? Or why can't my radar take a lock on this aircraft right now? You know, it's, I got to shoot a weapon here. Uh, we're getting kind of close. So uh, it does really tend to introduce a level of difficulty in just trying to execute the basics. And that's the whole point. And that's the purpose of electronic warfare is to make the operator's job uh, difficult, if not impossible, to do what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and for a lot of young pilots, an environment like this is really the first time where they get to experience that at a sufficient degree where they, they start to really appreciate uh, what the effects of electronic attack can be on them. Uh, for this exercise here, 
uh, it was uh, contracted air that would fly those uh, electronic attack profiles or those types of aircraft that had those capabilities. Um, so that was nice to be able to see that, uh, the effect that electronic attack had on the team overall. Um, of course, Blue Air, the good guys, we can counter that as well uh, to a certain extent. But for the most part, the training that we're trying to do and the learning that we're trying to drive is being able to overcome that and develop game plans that can accommodate you know, a loss of comms for a certain period of time, or be able to target into another aircraft that's jamming you via other means, for example. So it was uh, it's a good exposure. Every mission has EA, and you we instill the mindset in, in all the pilots, but especially the young ones that always expect to be under electronic attack all the time. It's just, that's the way it normally is, and that's the way it will be in operations. Uh, so just, uh, again, get comfortable with it, uh, persevere and uh, continue to execute your uh, your game plan. That's it. Yeah, um, it poses such a such an incredible problem. And yeah, how do you how do you emulate it safely? It's 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 really really an interesting topic. It not just emulate it from a defensive but also offensive perspective. Um, so one of the aspects to Cobra Warrior for this iteration twenty three two was in your third week you were doing night operations and that's the first time i believe that's happened for cobra warrior um what was that like yeah it was uh it was fantastic because as i mentioned by the end of week one you're pretty comfortable with the exercise and the tactical problems that you're uh, you're getting that's not to say you're winning every day uh, but you're getting into the groove by the end of week two you're feeling pretty comfortable that day and then to be thrown the curveball of okay now we're going to operate these same, if not more difficult tactical problems uh, with the same aircraft that night, uh, just kind of throws everything on its head. So as you can imagine, I think and appreciate, everything's harder to do at night. Uh, so it's a lot harder to, to fly your tactics, to fly your game plan at night when uh, what we call your situational awareness uh, of your surroundings in the cockpit is that, that much lower at night. Uh, it's hard to see other aircraft uh, it's dark in the cockpit. It's hard to reference mission materials. Uh, it's just uh, that much more difficult. You can't really see the ground. You might be operating on or with night vision goggles that reduce your field of view as well, too. So all of this stuff com uh, combines to make it a very challenging operating environment. And one where if you're not careful and you try to ask too much of your team or your formation, they may not actually be able to execute it because it's it's just that much harder at night. So you really have to think about how can other people execute this at night? Uh, is this plan kind of as simple as possible? Or how can we make it more simple if it's a little too complex to execute at night? Because not a lot of people have a lot of experience or proficiency operating within these large packages at night. Right. And just as a point of interest for me, um, you're typically flying with a Jehemix helmet, right? And so at night, would you just use the Jehemix or would you use a modified helmet with NVGs, night vision goggles, or can the two be mixed? I'm not sure. So in the past, it used to be one or the other for us. So uh, the Jehemix provides um, almost a, a camera that projects uh, some symbology onto your visor that you can see. So you can kind of think of it as a, a system that you can use to cue your radar or your weapons by just looking at something. Uh, 
uh, as well, uh, or in contrast to your night vision goggles, uh, where they uh, obviously amplify the ambient light there to not quite turn day into night, but to make you see a lot uh, more farther and in a lot more detail at night. Uh, but we recently uh, uh, introduced some new equipment which combine the two. So we'll have our night vision goggles where the video of that symbology gets injected into the goggles themselves. So we'll enjoy the benefits of both, uh, which in a nighttime environment is critical. As I mentioned, your field of view is typically restricted when you're wearing your night vision goggles. So it's nice to have the assistance of your system cueing you to where other people are or where the target area is so that you can just quickly find and locate them visually by looking at them. That's super cool. So if I've got you correct, it's a helmet with NVGs, but the NVGs also have a feed into them that is Jehamics like That's correct. And it's entirely compatible with the system that's currently in the Hornet. Uh, so it was just a matter of uh, getting the proper adapter for the helmet and then the existing night vision goggles slightly modified to allow for the video to be injected. That's super cool. How, how long has that been in use? Because again, like anything else, you've got to train to that. And so what a wonderful opportunity here at Cobra Warrior to exercise that. Yeah, I think that capability has been around for a couple of years now. Uh, we just got it with our fighter force within the last year or so. So we're uh, it's relatively new for us uh, to have both of those capabilities together. But remember, our pilots are still used to using the existing queuing system during the daytime. Uh, they're proficient at night flying on night vision goggles. So just merging the two, it's not that much of a leap in terms of the training burden or uh, the challenge of being proficient with that system because most most pilots are, are used to the two it's actually pretty welcome now to have uh, that added video in your night vision goggles to help you overcome this uh, this night environment which can be pretty challenging yeah I, well i'm glad that you've got it um one of the other interesting aspects that cobra warrior i believe provided to the rcaf was the opportunity to fly with the Voyager, uh, which is the uh, the Royal Air Force version of the A330 MRTT. Um, talk to me about refueling from that, because you're familiar with the CC-150 Polaris, but Canada has announced that they're going to be acquiring the A330 MRTT. And in Canada, we're going to call it the CC-330 Husky. Husky, that's correct. Yeah, I think it's a great name, just personally. Yeah, um, I do too. Uh, but flying with that aircraft, well, first off, I've, I've refueled off many different types of tankers. Typically, they're mostly the same, uh, and they're kind of designed that way, so they're standardized. So you can rejoin on the wing of one tanker and kind of understand how things work and, and how big the basket is that you're trying to aim for. Um, but uh, the Voyager in particular, I enjoy. It's a bigger aircraft. That means it's typically a little bit more stable on the wings where the refueling pods are located. Uh, so when you're trying to uh, uh, when you're trying to trying to air-to-air -air refuel, uh, the basket's a little bit sta more stable. It's not bouncing around in the turbulence, so it just makes your job a little bit easier uh, getting the gas you need so you can go and fight. Uh, but I think it's a great addition for uh, the Air Force. It's multi-role, so it's not just about refueling fighters. Uh, it can move a lot of people. It can move a lot of equipment, uh, and it can be uh, changed depending on the, the needs of the mission itself too. So uh, I, th I think it's going to be a, a great addition and, and will be uh, something that 
uh, will help the Air Force out in all of its mission sets, not just uh, supporting fighter operations. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it on the line. It, it, and the other thing that it brings is it just, you know, if we're just talking about the area refueling capability is you can deliver a lot more fuel. Yeah, it's a ton of fuel. Uh, it carries a ton of people. Uh, and the way I like to think of it and and talk talk about it to other people is like it's basically your squadron in a box. So we can put everybody on the jet uh, and the jet can take uh, a lot of equipment and gas and just drag the fighters across the ocean. And so you kind of have all your squadron together with all the people uh, with the gas you need and uh, at least with uh, an initial amount of equipment to operate so it's kind of a one-stop shop and when you think about that it's uh it's a pretty impressive capability yeah yeah so you know we've talked about interoperability we've talked about flying with different aircraft we've talked about what you guys were doing at cobra warrior um in speaking with the royal air force they mentioned to me that at cobra warrior they're using the spear software which is used for analysis and debrief and what have you um so have you ever used Spear and what was your experience in using it at Cobra Warrior? So I haven't used Spear before. Uh, neither has uh, any other pilot from, from Three Wing, either 425 or 433. So this was our introduction to, to the system. Uh, and overall, I think we're pretty, uh, pretty excited and pretty interested in some of the, uh, the advanced capabilities that it provides in terms of trying to figure out what just happened. So it's a software that supports the air combat maneuvering instrumentation that uh, everybody carries on their jets. So that's the software that takes all the data in and recreates the fight. We have something similar. Uh, you could uh, consider it uh, something a little bit older, but uh, still pretty effective. But my initial uh, impression on it was that there's a lot more capability in terms of data analysis and recording what's exactly happening throughout the entire fight uh, so that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can really get to the bottom of what happened uh, to start answering why it happened and how are we going to do things better. Uh, so that was our first introduction to it. And uh, it seems like it's a, a pretty promising software uh, and something that uh, I think we enjoyed using. One of the aspects that I mentioned earlier about uh, when we talked about ACE employment uh, and having all the fighters uh, and all the forces geographically dispersed was uh, Spear allowed us to transmit uh, that fight. So the entire reconstruction uh, and you know the entire two-hour fight, we can play that and transmit that to all the other outstations as well. So we're all kind of in the, we may not be in the same room, uh, but we're all watching the same thing happen in front of our eyes on the screen. And so to be able to bring everybody together using uh, this software, uh, I thought did a pretty good job in, in enhancing uh, how we were able to extract that information because, you know, we have so many different forces at different bases, it would be impossible to, you know, set up a conference call and just have everybody call in and call stop when they have some data to, to talk about. So it did, a, I think, a really good job um, uh, decreasing the time that it, takes to conduct a reconstruction, but also allow people from outstations to participate, which was key for us in this exercise. Yeah, it, it, well, it sounds like a really interesting technology. And I guess a, a question that I think is reasonable to ask is, you know, this was your first experience in using it. How would you evolve it if you could say, hey, I'm now a user of it. I've seen what it can do, uh, how it can help me. 
what would you do to tweak it? What I would do to tweak it was, uh, well, first off, I would, you know, get other uh, fighter pilots and other users in a room and uh, brainstorm some ideas here. I think the functionality that we saw right now was uh, was good, uh, and it was good enough to conduct a, a large force employment. Uh, what I would want to have more knowledge on was actually how to extract that data. So uh, it, it can go into some very specific um, detail that a flight lead or a mission commander may want to uh, know at the end of the mission. For example, uh, if somebody ends up shooting an aircraft, did somebody else shoot that aircraft at the same time? Uh, we would call that double targeting. Uh, and that's kind of an example of where you're probably wasting some uh, some valuable munitions. So uh, can, can we have the software tell us, well, how many times uh, is this happening? And can we now pinpoint the time in the mission where these things are occurring? Uh, not just related to how we're employing weapons, but uh, for example, if uh, an aircraft traverses into an area where it's not supposed to go, can we uh, immediately recognize that? And can the software then kind of provide this information or prompt uh, the mission commander uh, to some area of the fight as it's happening or has it happened that they should look into for further detail because something wasn't quite right here. So um, I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of people together, a lot of fighter pilots uh, uh, kind of pooling their ideas in terms of how can we make things better is probably the best approach. Uh, what I saw so far is I think pretty promising. It's, I think, a challenging environment for uh, a reconstruction software uh, like Spear uh, to, to handle. And I think it did a pretty good job. Um, I'd like to see how it uh, would operate at a, at a smaller scale, actually, uh, at a squadron where we're doing smaller type missions and maybe we now have the time to go into even more detail. Uh, how would this uh, software support more academic, academic type missions like our basic fighter maneuvers or our dogfighting missions uh, or the missions where uh, we practice working as a team to fight another adversary uh, in the visual environment? Is there any uh, cues that the system could tell us uh, with regards to the adversary's uh, weapons engagement zones our own engagement zones? Are we missing uh, weapons employment opportunities? These are, I think, uh, things that, that can probably probably be explored for, uh, for any type of software uh, from the small scale missions all the way up to the largest. Yeah, that's really interesting insight. And I perhaps should have asked you this before, but you know, you're a first time user of this software how was the learning curve for you? Like, I mean, you know, it's like you're introduced to, okay, well, here's the spear system, but you know, it's not like you were trained on it. No, we weren't. Uh, and there was a little bit of a learning curve, but actually not much. The system was pretty user, uh, user friendly. It's pretty intuitive, uh, data entry. So adding your data into uh, specific events, whether you're employing weapons, uh, or whether you want to jump to a certain time and just have a look at where everybody else is. Uh, at that uh, point in time it was actually pretty easy. Uh, after I think the first mission, our guys were uh, were able to just jump on the console themselves and start uh, inputting their data and beginning to extract those bits of information uh, to answer, hey, what happened during the fight at this particular period? Uh, so it was pretty, uh, it was pretty uh, user-friendly. I think that's important, important for a pilot. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it takes us a while to learn things and learn things well, but if the software is easy, that's going to help us uh, and help us in our, in our training. 
Uh, it's 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 a hallmark of good software, right? If you don't have to take too much time trying to learn it, how to use it. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've been to many exercises around the world, uh, you know, in Canada, North America, beyond. How would you compare Exercise Cobra Warrior to other large force employment exercises? I would say it's uh, it's really good. Um, a lot of other large force uh, employment exercises uh, are... Uh, are of similar nature, right? The, the, the challenges are the, are roughly the same, you know, you're trying to attract as many participants as you can. Um, but the one feature that we've had here at Cobra Warrior, which, uh, I think was, was, was really good training for us was not operating at the same location, uh, and trying to package all of our capabilities together, executing it together in the airspace to get the job done. Uh, that's not something I've experienced in Maple Flag or Frisian Flag or uh, Red Flag. Um, and that was actually a welcome uh, surprise here for us. Uh, that was one aspect of the exercise I really enjoyed. Um, and I think that, you know, continuing to provide that mission planning environment, that brief and that debrief environment uh, for everybody is is probably something that is worth emphasizing uh, and is worth improving on and and expanding on uh, because as i mentioned earlier i think that's a aspect of modern operations that has already arrived and will persist uh, so that in conjunction with with the great airspace uh, we had here i thought made for a, a really good training environment oh i'm so glad to hear that um and hopefully the royal canadian air force will return i suspect they probably will you know it's it's good training um so as we kind of near the end of this conversation you know what are some of the biggest lessons learned from being there you know you kind of mentioned a few right there but uh um i guess you know from a tactical perspective you know your unit your detachment you know what was the big biggest lessons for the team here, I would say the biggest lesson is just to be comfortable with uh, uh, with the typical challenges and problems that you're going to experience operating far from home. We really do have to be comfortable with that, and we do have to adopt that problem-solving mindset. Like I said, if we don't have the logistical support, the jets don't fly, uh, no matter how well you brief the mission. Uh, so for, for me as the commanding officer here, that team aspect is critical, right? Everything needs to be functioning well. Uh, and people need to uh, rise to the occasion and solve problems proactively uh, so that everything can continue to run smoothly. Uh, as we move to the more tactical aspect of, of the missions, really just having that experience for the younger pilots. Uh, exercises like this one, like Cobra Warrior, it's not something that uh, somebody on uh, their first tour at a fighter squadron is gonna experience every year. Uh, they may only experience it once or twice. Uh, just being here, gives them uh, that, that, that confidence, uh, that experience that they're going to need to rely on when they go and do this for real. Uh, and that, uh, that lesson is, is invaluable because there's no other place to do that uh, than on an exercise like this. Um, lastly, I would say uh, for all the pilots uh, as a team, uh, being able to work together uh, as uh, a flight of four aircraft in a larger environment with different aircraft that they're not typically used to be working with. And again, adopting that problem-solving mindset and then taking the resources that they have and figuring out the best way to achieve the problem, uh, that's critical. It comes back to just basic critical thinking. And you're always 
thinking about ways to challenge pilots and, and challenge anybody really and give them those opportunities to develop. Uh, but you really have to address their critical thinking. And, and if you don't have a good scenario, uh, if you don't have all the resources that you need uh, and the problems identified, it's going to be really hard to challenge people and have them utilize and develop their critical thinking abilities. And in the end of the day, that's what it all comes down to. We're just here to solve problems. We have specific resources uh, to do that. And at the end of the day, if we can get that done and we can get everybody home safely, then we're winning. Totally. Completely agree. And yeah, I've really, really enjoyed hearing about this exercise. And I'm so glad that you guys have had the opportunity to participate and learn from it. Um, being in England must just be lovely too. Like, I mean, you know, they're a wonderful ally. Uh, there was something interesting that I saw, you know, being, being passionate about aviation, you know, it was really neat to see that at least one CF-18, perhaps more, was able to transit through the mock loop in Wales. And um, that's super cool. Like, I mean, it's not to say, it, you know, I don't want anybody listening to this to think that that's just hot dogging, you know, you don't, take a jet up for you know just to just to take it up for the sake of doing so uh you know it's always training but um but that must have been pretty cool i don't know if if you had that chance or not no i didn't have that chance but uh i'm happy for uh the younger guys to have that training opportunity um and when we talk about a mission like that uh what we're talking about is being comfortable operating in the low level environment so a little bit closer to the ground uh, and being able to maneuver your jet, fly it safely, either individually or as a formation. So it just happens to be a pretty popular location where uh, photographers uh, can come out and capture some pretty incredible imagery. Um, so if you give a pilot an audience, uh, of course, they're going to like that. Um, but uh, and they were pretty excited uh, with the opportunity to experience that. Um, uh, I think we got one or two guys through the mock loop. Uh, so they did uh, some good training around the country in the low level environment. And, uh, and so that was, that was uh, pretty good for morale too. And it's always nice when you can combine, you know, good training uh, with something that's also fun and, and a unique experience uh, that just, uh, once again, that, that does uh, a lot for the morale. Yeah, that flexibility, that diversity just makes that job just that much more enjoyable and yeah, rewarding. Um, so Colonel, what's next now for 433 Squadron? So we're going to go home. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a post-exercise leave uh, and reconnect with our families uh, and uh, rest a little bit. Uh, but we'll we'll be back at work, uh, get back uh, back to work, help 425 uh, with the NORAD mission as well, too. Uh, and then just uh, like we always do, get ready for the next one. Yeah, right on. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Lawrence, uh, Commanding Officer of 433 Tactical Fighter Squadron with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you, sir, so much for taking the time to speak with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I hope those that are listening will learn from it, too. Thanks, Jody. I enjoyed it. And yeah, we just got on a roll, I suppose. So uh, yeah, thanks for your time. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. That, my friends, was Lieutenant Colonel Tom Lawrence, the commanding officer of 433 Tactical Fighter Squadron with the Royal Canadian Air Force. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. We hope you'll join us for another episode. Take care, everyone.
The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.